Welcome to Journey to the Centre of Food. My name's Jay Taylor. I'll be driving the sub today along with James Winter on the controls alongside me as ever. Hello. And on today's show, we're going to be sitting back on the sofa with a pint of Prosecco and a takeaway curry on our laps to indulge in a bit of food TV. That's right, we are delving behind the scenes of what has led to your favourite food TV shows making it onto the screen every week and what the future might hold in store for us hungry food viewers everywhere. So if you're ready for a spot of Robot Bake Off or maybe Mutant Masterchef, then grab a remote and stay tuned for a journey to the centre of food television's future. Hello James, how are you doing? I'm good, I'm good. This is another purely self-indulgent episode, isn't it? Just me and it you is. chatting, because we can't get together and, and have beers and just talk to each other. We have to yeah. do it to you, dear listener. <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to talk about TV, because this is what James and I do for our whole careers and every day we have been you know immersed in the world of food television so now we're going to involve you all in it or whichever one is left listening absolutely here it's all about food television again well and and, and the reality is for those people listening that think a career or a job in food television or or television any sort would must be a fascinating wonderful vibrant active career 99 percent of it is people just sat in a room talking to each other about something unrelated (laughs) to the thing they're meant to be doing that's what it is. Basically, this is what food TV, working in TV is actually yeah. like. And then someone will go, oh, did you do that thing? Oh, okay, hold on. <laughs> yeah, did you do that thing? I love that thing. Did and they... you generally didn't love that thing, but you have to say you love that did thing. Did anyone ring else. so-and-so? No? Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, no, we should have done that. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about, over, over Christmas, you and I indulged, and we spoke about how we make food television mm. and uh amazingly more than one person listened to that i think there was almost three wow and we've had some comments from people saying they really enjoyed it but they've asked a little bit more about um well not how it's made but more about how do they get made or, or decided upon in the very first yeah, place who so are we, these mystical godlike figures that sit in the clouds and decide that you shall have a new series of x or this person exactly this person is going to be your next jamie oliver who are yeah, who decides how does it happen well this happens to be the murky world that i live in every day of my life so what we thought was we begin with explaining what we're defining as food television anyway then delving a little bit into how programs get commissioned onto the screens that you watch every day. And then we're going to jump back into the past to see where food television started. And then hopefully at the end, try and divine what the future might hold. So to begin with, James, when we're saying food television, what are we talking about today? What is food television? What, what's our well, definition in my, of it? In my mind, it has to be somewhere where food is not just simply the, the sort of narrative prop it's not the framework or the environment in which people are involved in it's actually what they are doing there's production of food i think this is me it's as part of the program whether that be in a competition whether that be in a, an instructional way like a what we called chop and chat last time but kind of to to whatever or about the world you know in which people are engaged in food production and and you know the sort of supply chain of, of food for me that is food television yeah and there's a, and, and we, look anyone listening to this will have watched thousands of hours i'm sure of food television we don't realize just how much of it we ingest mm-hmm. and as james said the different categories tend to be what we call chop and chat which generally is a one or two chefs making food and talking about it we have uh, competition foods which i'm sure we've all watched from the master chefs to the bake-offs of this world and we have the more features fair so the anthony Bourdain's of this world um through to heston's adventure programs programs where there's interesting things happening where food is absolutely the core driver behind it but you're getting to see the world alongside with it so how does this all get onto the air? Well, 
bear with me. I'll give you some very bare bones out there about how the TV commissioning process works. And I'll do it from a UK perspective, but this is very, very similar in America, where I work as well. Um, the, the basic principle is the same, which surprises a lot of people, which is basically all the television that you watch on the screens is not made by the channels. Now, for example, in, in Britain, yes, news and sport are made by BBC and sometimes ITV, but in the very large majority, all the main channels, and we're talking BBC One and Two, ITV, Channel Four, Channel Five, plus Sky and all the other various different channels once you start going down the um, EPG, they are made by companies, independent television production companies. Some of these are two or three people, some of these are a hundred people, and some of these are huge companies who are in the in the many, many hundreds, if not thousands of people. So how does it work? Well, every channel is, in essence, the best way to imagine it is they're like a supermarket. So uh, imagine Channel 4 is Sainsbury's. What they do is they have money, which is given to them by the advertisers, and then they go out and buy shows, much like supermarkets buy the food to go on the, on the shelves. They have commissioners in different departments. Those departments generally split into things like comedy, drama, factual, and then those within those departments, you have multiple people. So you have people who deal with specialist factual, which is science and history. You have people who deal with features, which is more your kind of home improvements and cookery shows. And you have people who deal with live television. All these people are called commissioners, and they're basically purchasers. And what the programme makers, myself, do on a daily basis is we come up with ideas. We create uh, taster tapes, pitch documents, and we go and sell it to these commissioners and say to them, hey, we've got the next best food idea. Would you like to buy it, please? And they say, okay, yes, we'll buy it. Here's the money. Go and make it. And that is how food television, along with all other television programmes, are commissioned and made. So, for example, The Great British Bake Off is made by Love. Uh, that was Richard McCarrow. And for years, if the stories are to be believed, Richard was pitching that idea around to all and sundry and nobody thought that a baking show in a tent was going to be of any interest to anybody and he went to all the different channels all the different times and kept coming back to them and saying this is going to be a hit and eventually the BBC went all right fine here's some money go and make the bake-off and the rest is history now the interesting thing about it is in the modern world getting tv shows away is incredibly hard so uh, from personal perspective and probably a, a lot of other producers I know would say around the same thing you deal with a sort of one in a hundred ratio so you come up with a hundred ideas and you may hit one sometimes it's less sometimes you're in the realm of 50 when you're having a really good year sometimes it can be even more if you're talking about food television programs it is really 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 difficult to get shows away because whilst we love ingesting it whilst people watch hundreds of hours uh, every month of food television there are some big beasts out there there's massive shows much like Heinz beans on the shelf of a supermarket if you want to get rid of a master chef there's no way that you're going to come up with a new show overnight that someone's going to take master chef off the airways to put that on so to understand where these big beasts came from we need to first of all take a trip back in time to when the food television first began over to you james well i mean it's interesting there doesn't seem to be a definitive answer as to when it actually began because i found two possible beginnings one the very first um sort of food program that's that's recognized in um, in the world of internet obviously because i haven't got the, the bbc archives to, to thumb through was a <laughs> show they made but apparently back in 1937 which was called a cook's night out now 
it, it was a cooking show, apparently. It featured a, a, a man I, I, I can only understand would be French because he's called Marcel Boulestin. Um, and he had five episodes in which he demonstrated different ways in, in creating a different dish with the premise being that he was going to serve a dinner party over the series. So it would be one episode for one dish, five courses at the end. But there is no... Recording, there is no record of this, oh, just paperwork. What a shame. I know exactly, exactly. I'm sure it was, it was, it would have been interesting to see it, but obviously, live television wasn't able to be recorded for, for quite a few decades after, I think, even. You know, they didn't have that facility, they just broadcast. Oh, and really? Then, and so, so it was all live. Everything was live, but they couldn't even record what they were broadcasting at this point. They were just talking, you know, um, without any kind of way to record what they'd done. And those things happened probably. I mean, there was, there was a short break for from a, a, a certain thing called World War Two, um, <laughs> and then after the war, a lot of sort of you know broadcasting started to come back in, and they developed the technology to record things, and things were recorded. and And the first televised cookery program, supposedly, again, you know, I'm, I'm not hundred percent certain, so please do correct me if you've got better information. Was was apparently on Wednesday, the twelfth of June, nineteen forty six. 8.55 p.m. very specific called a program simply called Cookery <laughs> starring <laughs> I love it <laughs> presented by a man called Philip Harden and we're like 10 minute very short instructional led um, uh, recipes I guess to camera um, and apparently the first show featured lobster volivants so very accessible for the uh, post-war crowd <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, but lobsters were. I mean, we'll do lobster as an episode because its journey is quite interesting. It wasn't the luxury gourmet item it, it is today. It was much more accessible, really? you know. But obviously, volivants, you know. Yes. I can't imagine there's a huge demand in 46 for that, but maybe maybe it's that odd um, escapism thing where, Absolutely. you know what, if everything's a bit grim and miserable, you want to be watching someone make that. And the thing about the, those two programs you described, both sound very familiar, don't they? They sound just mm. oh, like absolutely. a template for food shows. Well, you can, you can almost, you don't need to see the footage. You know exactly what he did. He had his ingredients out on a board. He talked you through the process of putting that together and then slowly he prepared things and, and then probably in 1946 took one out of the other and he'd made slightly earlier. <laughs> That would be my my vote. <laughs> and and, and do that thing that Heston hated, where he tastes his own food and goes, "Mmm, lovely, mm, delicious." <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. That, that's a very new. I mean, having both of us work with chefs in in the world of making these programs, there is that awkward moment where they have to pass judgment on their own food, and obviously there is only one response you want as a program maker, which is it's delicious, right? It's and delicious. But, but they feel both arrogant, you know, nervous. You're unsure. It's you know, so that's why you end up with these very awkward kind of endings. Food show endings are very interesting to me because I'm always watching to see how they're going to sign this off. Because again, yeah, we're getting into production, but you have to eat that food. I mean, it's very odd. I think when you have a food show, it doesn't show the food being eaten at the end. It feels very wasteful. Why oh have you yeah, made it. But then, what reaction are you going to get if it's genuine? I mean, this is when I love the bit where they welcome their families. It's always like, come on, guys, try the food. Another family pile in. Oh, oh this is lovely, oh, mum. Thanks. You know, and, and Rick Stein has a very signature end shot of like the empty plate with lots of forks being thrown in so as if the crew have eaten it and really enjoyed it so there's there's lots of different ways of doing it and obviously the master of, of, of the reality of this was Keith Floyd and, and when we you know when we look at the journey of food television you know we go from 1946 through various incarnations of people cooking to camera you know it didn't really get formatted Fanny Craddock obviously yeah, Fanny Craddock and I mean I remember wonderful people obviously Delia Smith and, and there was a wonderful chef which I don't know how many other people remember but was very influential in my childhood was a man named um, John Tovey who had a restaurant in uh, the Lake District called Miller Howe and he used to do a cookery show and do quite ornate dishes and my parents
parents would watch it and copy it and occasionally they'd try it and, and whatever. So there were lots of characters that would emerge and Madder Jeffrey and Ken Holm and, and all these characters came along. But it was always Keith Floyd that had that element of reality about it, which was there are, there are sequences in, in some of the Floyd series, particularly in Floyd on France, for those people who are studying and are students of food television i would suggest this is in my opinion the finest food series ever made floyd on france where things are just so real there's a, there's some wonderful iconic sequences where he cooks an omelet for a very very let's say um uh, which is called the, the various descriptions of her on the internet but she's a very stern looking woman um <laughs> in a country house and he's come to their region to show them how to cook the most popular dish of the region um and he makes a complete you know he cooks it you know, how he wants to she tries it and and she just tears him apart in french you know everything's raw undercooked this is awful that's not what's supposed to taste like oh my god and in that brilliant Floyd way he says well you better show me yourself so she cooks it you know and he's whittering on in the background just having just brilliant banter and then he tries hers and says well look you know this isn't what I would have made <laughs> <laughs> but you know there you go that's the end if of it the has se- to do <laughs> and that's the end of a sequence which you know as Jay will know too you just would never be allowed to film or show that sequence now it just wouldn't be a, it would just not be an ending but anyone you know the question will be why have you picked a woman that doesn't want to, to yeah know, why to, does it end badly why and does it end ju- with people saying this is not good and and it's such an unusual sequence but it's so brilliant but you just could not do that now and you know it's it's that freedom but there are sweet spots in the journey of all things and I think that little sweet spot where no one was really that even you know now I would argue that people don't really understand why people watch food television in the commissioning world and maybe Jay can talk about that in a minute and why it's so hard to get things away it's very difficult to find commissioners you know that that really understand what it is that people get from watching food television they know it's popular so they put it on but very few of them really understand the passion for it but in that period clearly there was nobody checking at all right <laughs> and they were well, making these personalities ran I mean I know we're talking about the UK but obviously the America followed a very similar kind of parallel didn't it, with Julia Child and there'll Ooh. be personalities over there who who, who connect uh, they connect and my, my view is that they you know formats connect with people people like the drama of competition with lots of faces and, and judges and whatnot now but you know in the in, in, in the days before that and today it's about the connection with the personality on the screen it's the chemistry between the presenter and the viewer and the, and the way in which you you give them trust you trust them to show you some things and it's at the right pace it just happens to be in the right sort of way of cooking that seems to answer some challenges that we've got in modern life at the time you know but they connect and people buy into them in such a way but that's where you know we'll, we'll talk about celebrity chefs in another episode you know but but celebrities come out of that you know people connect in the same way you know musicians do people do one album and somehow you know they become rock stars overnight even though they've been working at this thing for 10 years and then they have that very difficult second album problem where you know they, they, they can't connect as well as they did the first time and that, that's the world of celebrity that, that can happen you know through food people become completely bowled over by the power of these people to persuade us to to cook or eat in a certain way and then and then in the 90s and 2000s but especially in the 90s there was really big sort of changes or evolutions in the world food tv what what, what it meant so in 1990 you had the advent of master chef and then in 96 you had uh, sorry 94 ready steady cook were born now the key with both of these they're very different to the incarnations they became especially master chef but this was the beginning of competitive food mm. on television there were iterations of it before but these are the ones that really started changing the way people viewed it and food 
it was no longer just a warm, cuddly character who you liked talking to you gently about making food. This suddenly turned food into something which sport. was adversarial. Well, sports, yeah. right? And and in this yeah. country, don't forget, you know, we are huge supporters of anything, right? I mean, America similar, but Britain in particular, we will support a team competing at anything with passion and in numbers you know and and when it when it comes to cooking we're just especially against australia for all our aussie listeners if we get to beat the french or the australians at at anything obviously we always will you know and in a way that's you know that's that's the backbone of those shows people love to see people compete and you know when when we're winning or we're losing is is not that important you know the world's not going to end and and also it's food so everybody has a view on food they can see with their eyes whether they would like it or not or whether they could do it it feels quite accessible so it's it's a very watchable competition and it's interesting you bring up ready steady cook because i was actually talking about that today with some some colleagues of mine about for me i mean one it's a very personal show i worked on the second series that's my television career started on the second series of ready steady cook ready steady cook format for those that aren't aware in america it was called ready set cook i think but basically the premise was that the contestants two of them would turn up with a shopping bag with a with the value of ingredients to, to five pounds in the uk i don't know what it was in america let's say it was five dollars and they would tip them out on the counter in front of a chef who had not seen any of these ingredients before and then were confronted with a challenge of with the help of their contestant um, to cook a meal, as many dishes as they wanted to, really, but some some edible good food to you know to you know to 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 put in front of people in twenty minutes, no more, no less, you know. And it was very strict about it. And obviously, you had a larder. I mean, there was a you know an illusion here. There was a very very full larder of dairy and all sorts of things behind them. But you had twenty minutes, and that was really important because there's only certain kinds of food you can cook in twenty minutes. And so for de- a decade at least, this, this format ruled supreme in, in the daytime schedules in the UK. And everybody was getting, we, you know, we, well, I, w- I was part of that journey in the sense that, you know, I was involved in it to the point where we'd started, we started, moved us around the schedule. As you know, when you're on a hit show, you get moved everywhere, you get up, up, up into the later hours. And then eventually you get your celebrity series, which yeah. is uh, which is broadcast on sort of Thursday night at eight o'clock. And, you know, we'd, we've suddenly got Kate Winslet versus, <laughs> versus somebody, you know, it was ridiculous, you know, and it was, you know, it was it was growing and growing, but what it did is it kind of showed you that what you could make in, in fifteen to twenty minutes, which is incredibly accessible, right? You know, it's a good amount of time for people to put a meal together without being frightened and 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 whatever. But what it does do is it cuts out a huge world of cooking. You know, the low and slow, the slow cooking. So as a response to that. I believe, you know, that there was a growth in the interest of, of slow cooking and slow food and cooking casseroles and, and long time cooking, which was suddenly just not part of the narrative of the nation. People were obsessed with what can I make in 15, 20 minutes? And I don't know if you remember the Jamie Oliver journey was like his books went from 30 minute cookbook to 15 minute cookbook to five minute cookbook. It became, it became, well, this is, I mean, that's a, I mean. One of Pat Llewellyn, who who uh, sadly is no longer with us, but she was ran Optimum Television, which was a huge impact on food television. She found Jamie Oliver, two fat ladies, Gordon Ramsay. I mean, mm. she is behind the very sort of pillars of kind of celebrity chefs in the UK. The story goes that Pat was in uh, the River Cafe and just heard this guy in the kitchen. Well, they were filming a, a documentary. There's a documentary on the River Cafe that they were making for Channel Four. One of these very lovely, beautiful sort of behind-the-scenes stories, you know, one-off, one-hour special about this incredible restaurant, which is still incredible, but at the time was was the place where the real foodies went because it, it, it was very simple but beautiful. And in the back room making the focaccia is Jamie Oliver, you know, and, and you know, he was 
quite good at making bread, apparently, by all accounts. I've no idea. But she was blown away by his charisma and his charm and his just the way that he made the food feel fun and interesting. And that's that was a new lifestyle. There was suddenly this world of young people engaged with food that, you know, people hadn't seen or heard from before and that's what that I've never opened. seen anything like that and it sounds simple now when you when you say it but just this guy turning up young guy with an accent gets on his moped he had all these lovely interstitial moments it just and the idea of just throw this in here and throw this in here it felt special and different and new and that's with all these reinventions of the food world that the absolute sort of beating heart of it is still the same it's mm. still either people making recipes or people competing over uh, making recipes but it's the presentation of it, something that makes it feel different. The same with Ramsey came along with the documentary Boiling Point behind the scenes of his restaurant. And that he just leaped. That was watching him go for, I think, his second star or his third star. And it was just kitchens in the raw, top kitchens in the raw, which we'd never seen before or not to that level. And this guy was utterly compelling. And he wasn't mm. Ramsey as he is now. He wasn't very polished celebrity Ramsey. He was just full on white jacket, screamy, shouty. Mm. really cared well and also that particular series is really interesting because it's it was very candid you know it was shot i don't know you know i don't know what say had in the final edits of these things but they would just put the cameras in the kitchen and film and see what happens and before that there have been equally fiery chef entities like marco pierre white and, and other people but the way they presented themselves on on camera was quite sedate and sort of you know sophisticated and, and when you watch Marco's series which were there are several that he made for various Thames Television and Channel 4 um, you know you don't see the firebrand cook that everybody talks about this kind of the white heat the burning kind of you know crazy you know chef driven by you know perfection and, and, and skill and, and taking no prisoners you don't you don't ever see that for Marco on television but in Gordon in Boiling Point that's exactly what you see you see someone just driving 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 a team every night to try and put the best plates of food out they can and and chefs still watch it now I some of the chefs in the Fat Duck still watch it and he'll have had no say in how that looks so when we make observation documentaries as I have with Heston when we did Inside Heston's World one of the first things you have to say to the guys is um, just so you know you'll have no say in what we put on the screen because if mm. you did you would basically be breaking one of the sort of fundamental rules of making of, of, of our world as a producer, which is this has to be honest, this has to be true, this is not a puff piece, this is not authored by you in terms of you can't cut it. Now, if we put something illegal in there, obviously you can have a say, but uh, it, it, we're not. It's not an advert. This is an honest documentary, and we have to f live, live by quite strict producer guidelines, which means a big deal. Where we're mm. like, you don't have any editorial control over this. When when you see those documentaries behind the scenes with kitchens or police or anyone like that that's one of the first things you say to anyone who's in it saying i'm sorry but you won't have any control over what we put you just have to trust we're going to do a good mm. job and that's really interesting because you know people have tried to replicate that in lots of ways and, and when we talk about food formats obviously they had hell's kitchen which clearly grew out of that dynamic that gordon created but in the world of drama they have endlessly i mean out this week is a film called boiling point um starring stephen graham um again i, ha I haven't seen it yet so i can't comment on on, on that film but you know what it's trying to capture it's trying to capture some of the the energy in those sequences in boiling point with gordon ramsay which you cannot you you couldn't write you know the dialogue one he's just a master at the, oh man i mean being ripped apart by gordon ramsay must you just you know you're in you know, just, i mean that whole idiot sandwich thing it's just i mean he's just a brilliant at it you know so you're never going to win so you're already lost and he just revels in it and sometimes it, it borders on but one but you know, quite, well, it doesn't just border on it, it steps right over the boundaries of cruelty and, <laughs> yeah. and bullying, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you wouldn't get away with it now. But, you know, the point was it was capturing, a, you know, what it took to take a restaurant to that point 
as we thought then. I don't think that's the only way, and I'm sure there are lots of people listening, you know, hopefully who have, have reached those same pinnacles and will tell you absolutely that is not how you have to do it, but it is one way, and it's the only way Gordon can do it. And it, somehow it, it it's a very real documentary to, to find if you can get it on YouTube and watch that. And I think, you know, what it... What it led to was, you know, people tried to formatize that. You know, people tried to create yeah. that drama, you know, in other ways because they loved it. They, you know, honestly, you know, it's, it's like catnip for commissioners, isn't it? When you've got that going on on the screen, you can't keep your eyes off it. So how do we manufacture that in a, you know, a more controllable format where people aren't bullied and abused, you know, but they are driven to the point where they really care to the point where they will put everything on the line and they will go through the pain barrier to deliver it and that's was i spoke i assume a kind of spark for hell's kitchen which is a really well, this is the interesting point. thing with derivatives because what you'll get is there's a point when when a show starts to work there's a point where other shows copy it so for example iron chef was actually 1993 japanese cookery show Love 300 it. old episode and that was a long time ago and that can be seen as a very foundational piece in terms of the food television but then you look at the leaps derivatives take of it now people tend to see derivatives as a sort of negative connotation but actually good derivatives tend to improve on a format they get better and better and better until suddenly it reaches a, a point where the show is so good anything else that comes along is so far in its shadow so I, I another one i'd use the example is masterchef was once that went to australia and the australian version of MasterChef was the very heights of producing. They basically took a principle that worked in Britain and made it so much better. It looked better, it felt better, the content was good, the people within it are better, the drama was heightened, everything felt better. And then once that happened, suddenly you have a show where you're like, anything else you come along and pitch, you how on earth are you ever going to compete with Absolutely. that no commissioner in their right mind is going to say okay good i'll take this fantastic show off the ser- off the sh- off the air and put your brand new show on because there's not many of those slots there's not many primetime slots and there's not many daytime slots where you can grow shows either i mean um great british menu obviously casts a shadow across that and there's a, another fabulous series which has been around for a long time and even shows like come dine with me which while not a food show is also a kind of a food show. Mm. And I know we're sort of, I know we're treading on the boundaries. Of it, so well, we that's it. I mean, well, I, that, well right? I think you're right. I think that show is very much a, a boundary show. It's not about the food, but somehow the dynamic of eating around a table and preparing food for others, you know, at that level is what that show's about. And it is, I mean, you know, obviously it's a brilliant show for lots of reasons, like Gogglebox, you know, you're just watching people be people, you know, and, and the magic is in the casting. It's not in the menus, but somehow the menus somehow represent their personalities so they come out anyway you know you're absolutely right and you know those kind of derivative shows are interesting and I think you know as you say when when you've got something that really connects with people in that way it's very difficult to suddenly wedge in something different that's a very interesting point because we're talking about the big shadow cast by the big beast formats you also have the same thing cast by the different presenter talents because what's happened over the past two three decades is every different sort of color of uh celebrity chef has been filled as well because you have your delia your rick stein your you know gary rhodes originally you had your um keith floyds and then you have your ramses and your olivers and if you come along with a new chef talent if you found someone great out there and they they obviously exist we're, we're looking for them all the time and i've recently made a show with fantastic chef gary usher about a year or two ago because we he's brilliant mm. uh, and we got a show on channel four with that but the trouble is everyone now goes oh yeah he's a bit like him 
or she's a bit like her, or, oh, that guy's a bit like that guy. So everything automatically feels derivative. So getting new food presenting talent away, I think, is almost impossible now because unless they are being grown on a on a show where they are like um think of nadia on bake-off absolutely she was on bake-off she built profile and then she had the opportunity to go over and i think she's a brilliant presenter watching one of her shows today she's fantastic she just sparkles but you would never have got nadia away if you just pitched her as a presenter no if she hadn't been on that journey there, there would be no you know and that's almost the purpose of those shows they, they turn out 12 maybe 20 new faces you know a, a year for everyone to have a look at, to let the audience touch and feel them, let's say, you know, and decide if they like them or not. And then the commissioners will sit back and pick one, perhaps, and go, that person. And then they say, what do you want to cook? And that's where it falls apart for me, because normally they don't have a have an answer to that question. So they don't have a food story to tell. They don't have a cuisine to share. They don't have a, a you know, a back, they have their journey through the formatted food show. I mean, it's a very difficult, it's like, it's like I was saying with musicians, it's a very difficult second album. I mean, what do they cook? Yeah. They, they end up doing my kind of food you know well, especially when they don't really have a kind of food because also it's like the anthony bourdain effect where people are now like well who's the next anthony bourdain was like well there isn't one because and there he will was be one. what there'll he be, was there'll be someone else so there will be someone else and i think what's growing and what has grown since 1937 or 46 depending on what what uh, what, what date you take you know is is i suppose for globalization of of media and so in that very beginning when you were talking about a, a, a sort of a, a, um, a high street with a supermarket that was stocking its shelves with products and you're pitching your product into that supermarket what's what's happened now that you know, in those days there was no direct route to market for a tv producer to take their talent to make some content and get it to the market to you know to you guys you know watching at home without going to one of these broadcasting supermarkets whereas the growth of youtube and tiktok and instagram and every platform available you can think of lanes that we do not need to go through the traditional broadcasting channels to get something out there you can put it out there at your own cost at your own risk and everything but it can connect in a way that's bigger and more direct than you would ever get from a broadcaster and then the broadcaster might come in and say we'd like to make a tv show and then a lot of people Honestly, we'll think, well, why why do that? I mean, I've got a million followers on YouTube. I mean, you know, and then what's happening is, you know, the globalization of, of you know, that, that media meant that your net was cast further and further across the globe. So when you're talking about Iron Chef, suddenly we're looking, you know, these big broadcasting conglomerates, you know, but we're talking about, like, you talk about Pat Llewellyn and, and Optimum, but Optimum's bought by all three media, and all three media's part of blah, 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 20th Century Fox and blah, blah, blah. And these guys have got, you know, huge networks of people people just searching turning over you know every stone to try and find talent and and it can come from anywhere so and also they're looking for formats so they're they're trawling through the you know the, the various networks brochures of tv shows and going oh that format we've not had how does that one work i mean you only have to look you know i mean iron chef is one but obviously outside the world of food i mean the mass singer has come out of korea or wherever it started and, and become a Absolutely. huge phenomena here but that was literally plucked out of a catalogue by somebody who bought the rights to it who then came back to the uk and starts trying to convince you know tv networks here i've to, been to, to south to korea to those events i've gone to south korea to those events i've been in france at mip and big events like that and that's exactly what you do you walk around you, you some of them are done on big stalls where they're basically like this is the event sometimes you have to go and seek out the producers 
uh, and it's an amazing it's an amazing experience because especially in south korea I had such an amazing time but some of the ideas are just complete crazy i mean they're sort of like you did what you did what it doesn't make any sense and our viewers wouldn't get it but some of them you suddenly go oh that's interesting yeah that's really curious because there's also a, one of the things you know we start talking about what so what does the future of food television mm. hold now if i knew that i'll be in gravy because it could be pitching all the shows for the future but there's also a there's a weird cyclical thing in tv like in most industries which is whatever was popular 20 30 years ago suddenly becomes popular again look at the the growth of the um the, the well the musical talent show mm. that was something opportunity knocks was around 20 30 years ago then it comes back again and there is this cycle where the ideas that were once old are now suddenly new again however as you said the brilliant thing about youtube is that it just comes along and just slices huge chunks of that out mm. because the idea of the days of like you said, those original 1970s, 60s shows where someone stands there and tells you how to cook a recipe, that is gone. It's not coming back because why would I not just watch YouTube? Absolutely. And I think that's the point. I mean, why wouldn't you? And so as a commissioner of a, of a broadcaster, you must be thinking, well, that feels like a YouTube show. But then but then they must look around their figures and, and the audience figures for television across the board are just falling away. You know, you, your days of EastEnders Christmas special getting 25 million, long gone. I mean, they'd be they're celebrating, I think the highest rated show of Christmas got seven or eight million this year. You know, it's kind Yeah, of, but look at Tiger King on Netflix. You're Like you said, global shows well, you get it, it right you get a show on netflix and they'll say well it didn't do that well or nobody likes it but it was watched by 150 million people <laughs> I mean, like nailed it and shows like that absolutely. are are brilliant but it, it it feels like that there's going to be a new turn of the wheel when it comes to food and entertainment and mm. and we're, we're often talked to by commissioners about this idea of genre mashing and what that means is you're taking two things and smashing them together which when they're done well looks like an absolute piece of genius and when it's done badly is absolutely car crashy but you, the idea is you would take we're going to mix together comedy and food or we're going to mix together drama and food and you end up here and it's it's you don't tend to do it in that when you're coming up with ideas you don't do it in that way you come up with great ideas or great mm. talent first and then figure it out but often people look back and go oh that's what made that show so successful yeah. because it put these two things together and i think that probably in the future there's going to be a new turn of that wheel there's going to be food is no you know we've had food as competition we've had food as entertainment we've had food as instructional what's the next food and the two things that will go together mm. and suddenly become quite an addictive viewing experience for everybody to get into because as you said food has become such a global thing now there's not a huge amount more novelty to be no, found I mean, there's only so many genres of television really when you break it down <laughs> you can't you know let's i mean there really isn't anywhere to go from a televisual format point of view i think so it's really going to be about finding you know as you say new ways to present ideas and ways that you know are from the past which now feel fresh and different whether that be through the talent whether that be through the territories it goes to and also the world of food has grown and people's relationship with it has changed you know there's food as medicine and food as healing food as meditation food as you know all these areas that people are using food you know because food is a, a functional part of our daily life so there'll always be an interest and a willingness to learn new ideas around it it's 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 how we present them and for me you know it's you know it, it's be very interesting to see where it comes from as much as what it is and I, I i can't see it coming out of a terrestrial broadcaster in my view you but you you're much closer to that world than me but my my time through it you know the time scales and the speed of which these these things happen is too slow you know things happen so quickly now that things can blow up as a trend in a day 
you know, and if you can't, if you're waiting six months to finish your program and then six months for it to find its slot on the schedule and to be launched, it's just too long. The world you is- can't be pitching. You can't be pitching shows on trends, like you said. It's it's cold and dead by the time you get it on air. You have to be pitching them almost to define a new trend, which is mm. very hard because what you need is you need people who commission the shows to be brave, incredibly bold and brave. brave. And and uh, and this is not disparaging at all because I've got lots of very good friends who Absolutely. do that job. Commissioning is not a bold and brave world. You have a lot of money on the line. And it, again, the supermarket analogy sounds very unromantic, but it is true. You have to be a very brave person to take Heinz beans off the shelves and replace them with the brand new beans just because you think it's a cool thing to do because suddenly your your shareholders are going to be going, I'm sorry, why have we lost millions of pounds? Absolutely. So yeah. it, it, it's, it's almost what we need is a new place to experiment with these things. We need a place where food television can be grown and become popular, but not, but in a way that, and that's not YouTube either. YouTube's fantastic, but YouTube oh. and television, they don't cross over. They don't work. They are brilliant separate genres, and I love them both. But it's not like you go, oh, that worked well on YouTube, that will work well on TV. Equally, you wouldn't do it the other way around. And, you know, a number of well-known chefs have had their fingers burned trying to do it that way around. Um so I think it's it's almost what's that next place where the new ideas can yeah. grow. And the immediate thought for me is obviously the worlds of Netflix, less so Amazon. Amazon, I mean, they have done a little bit of food. Interestingly, they they made the. Um, have you ever seen it with um, uh, James May from uh, Top Gear? The, oh yeah, or, yeah. Or as it's called, the what's it called now? The the the, the um, what's it called on Amazon? The, the Grand Tour. Grand Tour, the Amazon incarnation of Top Gear. Yeah, you know, they did a food show with James yeah. May. You yeah, know, and, and so they've solved their problem. Is you know uh, they you know, they they obviously want to put food out there. Food is popular. They see must see how popular it is on Netflix and other platforms, and how it's driving you know subscriber bases. We're always different things. How does Amazon do food? I know. <laughs> Let's take our presenters of our most popular show and get them to cook. Now, interestingly, the way they've ended up with it being is that James is not a very good cook, and that and <laughs> that is the backbone of the show. He cooks something and then says, "Well, well I." burnt it um <laughs> anyway here's for home economist who's going to cook it again and show it to you in a way that uh, it should come out for you when you try it at home <laughs> <That's fair. laughs> Which i kind of quite liked i didn't necessarily engage with the, the show properly but i watched all the episodes and i quite liked the honesty of that and i think if they were going to pursue one way to if i if anyone amazon's listening whatever that would be my tip pursue that angle go for the Strip go for it, the raw stripping away yeah stripping because that's all the away. beauty of the grand tour and having watched clarkson's farm over christmas you know um in you know, you know Every day we'd sit and watch another episode of Clarkson's Farm, which is a brilliant series if you haven't seen it, because it's 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 Clarkson at his pompous best, but also it's very real. I mean, he's a man who's trying to run a farm with a with a team of people, and it's bloody hard, and and they don't shy away from the hardness of it. And I think that's an element of of of, of food production and food service and food creation that people don't. You know, we'd shy away from it as we were talking about. We are kind of almost, well, we don't want to see that bit. It's all wonderful and it's so delicious and it's great. And actually, a lot of realism in it would be very interesting. And there's a lot of failure in food. There's a lot of food things that don't work or aren't nice to eat or don't work as products. And, you know, for some reason on television, we, we, you know, we like success stories, but there's success in failure as well when it comes to food because there are no rules. And we learn as much from watching people have a go because that's our reality of food. You know, we're just going to cook something and some days it's better than others right that's why i nailed it such a joy because it is inherently normal and funny and that's something that's something james and i would love as well please do send in your worst food television oh and your best come on and your your best we're not gonna make people's best ideas we want the worst ideas mash those genres together put the worst presenters on them at journey to the center of food on instagram or journey to the center of food at gmail.com 
please just pitch your very worst food TV shows and we'd love to hear those. It and here's be. a challenge for you, Jay. If they do in numbers, you have to promise to pitch one of them. <laughs> yeah, I will. To the BBC. Just okay. the most <laughs> absurd. The most absurd one and come back and just see what they said. And obviously, if it turns out to be the biggest new format, then obviously you're going to have some interesting contractual issues with, with whoever I, I tell them. you what, I'll pitch it properly as well so that we get like one of those nice emails back. Oh, it's, 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 where they try and say something nice so not offend you too much. Oh, Jay, it's, it's good. I wonder if maybe the idea of having Mr. T doing barbecue Absolutely. is quite good. <laughs> so yeah, please send those in. Um, there's only one person left listening anyway because it's just been another one of those ones where you and I have talked about television. But um, Yeah, they've all gone off to listener. do something much more interesting. <laughs> watch, watch food TV. Uh, James, we're out of time on this one, but um, hopefully we will figure out the future of food television uh, and we will make the next MasterChef Bake Off, Rick, Rick Stein, Floyd on... Fanny, no, that's an entirely different show. <laughs> Let's not do though. that. For our American listeners, that sounds a very weird combination. Uh, until next week, thank you ever so much. See you soon. Pleasure. See you soon.